Everybody Googles everything, especially potential customers or employers, and a business or personal online reputation can make or break you. If negative search results or reviews are impacting you, Webamax is here to help. Our proven process restores your online reputation quickly and effectively, and it matters. Don't let negative results control your narrative. Visit GoWebamax.com and fill out a brief confidential form to see how we can help. Remember, if you aren't paying attention to your online reputation, someone else is. GoWebamax.com. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. It's time for Cover 2 Broncos. Just a couple dudes breaking down scheme, film, and the numbers. Now, your hosts, Joe Rowles. Welcome back to another episode of Cover 2 Broncos. I am Joe Rowles, and I am welcomed today by John Todd of Sports Info Solutions. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Joe. This is great. Uh, so, I, I got to kind of, there's a little bit of story involved. So, last week, I was digging into edge rusher stats, and uh, mostly because the Broncos, there's a lot of talk about Von Miller. And I noticed, I, I like Sports Info Solutions, how you guys track pressures. And I mentioned it, and you guys reached out to me, and it just, it was kind of like, yeah, definitely. I definitely want to have you guys on. And I actually bought your book. Um, I got it on Monday, so I'm still catching up to some of it, but I love it. I, I love one of the things I really like about it is I have the book open in front of me if I'm doing a mock draft machine or if I'm looking at a player. If I'm in a hurry and I'm trying to do fast like a mock, because I'll do it before work, stuff like that, I have the one liner and I can see that. But if I see the one liner and I'm really interested, I can dig down on the whole player and get the whole rundown. So like, I can't recommend it enough. Uh, if you guys are interested, I would assume you are because you guys are listening to this. So I would think you guys are listening for draft stuff. Um, it is available at actasports.com. Um, if you want a digital copy, you can also order it on Amazon. I got the hard copy just cause I actually write in it. Uh, sorry about that. I don't know if that bothers you, but I like taking notes in my guides. Uh, so I like having a hard copy. Because otherwise, I just end up having a notebook next to me for it anyway. Um, so having the hard copy helps me a lot. So, But I, I love it. And the work that you guys have put into it, it shows. So thank you so much for sharing it with me. Thanks for reaching out. 
Yeah, no, appreciate it. Um, yeah, the handbook is uh, this is the third year of putting it together now. Um, and it's interesting. It's kind of got something, like you said, something for everybody. Uh, the whole first section of the book is all kind of our R&D staff putting together in-depth analytical research projects, basically writing articles about stuff, um, any topic under the sun. Then we have the whole team section pages. So all 32 teams are represented, um, breaking down numbers that we've charted throughout the year. Um, I guess I could start off by saying Sports Info Solutions is first and foremost an analytics company. Um, we chart every NFL and NCAA football game from the season. Um, we bring in interns who do all that stuff for us. And uh, as well as I do plenty of games as well. Um, so it's a charting operation first and foremost. And so this is, we have the, the in-depth analytics that come with that. And then myself and Nate Cooper couldn't join us tonight are kind of the two heads of scouting along underneath our boss, Matt Manicharian, who's a scout in the NFL for a number of years. Um, we wanted to break into the scouting side of things. That's kind of what we want to do moving forward. Um, that's where our main interest lies, as well as obviously the charting side of things. And so we're trying to merge the two or maybe not merge the two, but at least uh, approach the two and, and offer the two to whoever the reader is. So um, the whole idea of the book is once you pass the team pages, then it's all scouting reports. Um, you look on one side of the page, it's the written scouting report, the eye, the eye scouting that some of our first year interns did, that I did, that Nate did. Um, writing scouting reports typically to uh, what you would read in a, in a scouting room that you'd uh, address to your general manager. Um, we have templates that we've learned from Matt in his time in the NFL. Um, we have a, a certain grading structure and all that stuff. And on the other side of the page is the analytics that we charted throughout the year um, through that player's games. And so you, sometimes they match up, sometimes they don't. That's kind of up for you to decide which one you want to side with. And one thing I love about it is I've – I've been involved, not involved, but I've been interested in analytics basically since I first got obsessed with football. Uh, it started out with Football Outsiders way back in with their prospectus way back when. Um, but the, the fact that you guys bring both the scouting to the analytics is exactly what I've been trying to do forever. So it's awesome. Um, and as a fun fact thing, uh, my first year in grad school, I actually talked to you guys about possibly go, moving to Pennsylvania. I just couldn't leave school at the time, but but yeah, so I've been in, I, I've known of you guys forever and I've been interested in you guys forever. So it's, it's pretty cool to get your book and dig into it. Yeah, no, that's great. And, uh, and just an aside, along with all the other stuff that I just talked about that I do, I also head up our recruitment of first year interns. So for anybody out there listening who wants to join in on the charting side and get a chance to contribute to the 2022 handbook next year, then, uh, then look us up online. We should be posting our job within the next couple of weeks. One thing to kind of move into the team pages, cause I thought this was really interesting um, the charting really caught my eye just because Broncos country, there, there's kind of some misconceptions about the Broncos scheme and the Broncos system and what they do. And the fact that you guys have the numbers right in front of it, like you can't dispute it. Like it was charted, like you can see it. Um, it caught my eye that the Broncos run a lot of gap scheme. I know that from like watching the game, but I didn't realize how much, um, they run it more than all but four teams in the NFL. Yeah, uh, they run it with their fifth most in the NFL. I noticed that too. Those were one of the things that I had taken down. Um, but then similarly, I mean, that doesn't mean that they're not a, a, a solely gap scheme team. Um, they still run 57% zone, which is, like we said, the conversely fifth lowest in the NFL. Um, but they're still running a, a lot of zone. So it's it's just their teams are more zone-based in the NFL. And so if you have any kind of balance like that, that's uh, that's not as common these days. I think it's interesting that we get into this mindset a lot of times when, especially draft Twitter will do this. And not to like throw out that draft Twitter is like an all-encompassing term, but people will say like, oh, he's a gap blocker. Oh, he's a man corner. 
But the thing is, in the NFL, like, teams run both. Like, if you run gap scheme, you're still going to run zone as well. And if you run a lot of man defense, like man coverage on defense, you're still going to run a lot of zone as well. Um, a lot of people think that Vic Fangio is a zone-heavy defense, and he is. But the Broncos actually ran man coverage last year. Uh, let me see. They ran man coverage last year more than everybody but nine teams. So they ran a lot of man last year. And I know that that's something that actually, from your charting back from when he was with the Bears, I actually noticed that he did that then too. So 2009, he didn't run a lot of band, if I remember correctly. I don't have the number in front of me. But I know Fangio and he was with the Bears in 2018. And then last year with the Broncos, they actually ran quite a bit of man coverage. Yeah. And uh, and again, like similarly with the offensive side of things, they're still over 50% zone. Um, but yeah, as we'll talk about the players and everything, like you can say a guy's a, a man cover corner or a zone corner or whatever, but I mean, at the end of the day, you're going to be able to have to do both. Um, you're not going to be playing in a scheme where you're doing that 100% of the time. Um, granted, you will see some college teams that are <clears throat> pretty much 100% zone blocking schemes and, and you just kind of get in that rhythm. Like obviously the, the chain hands of the world have like a very specific scheme, but that doesn't mean they can't mix in some other stuff. So um there's trends and then there's the big thing that i noticed looking at the Broncos stuff is um while they might have been 10th in man coverage it's just looking down the board their ranks and everything the way they use their personnels the way that they run their coverages the way that they blitz players or, or sent number of rushers it's as diverse as it comes in the nfl there's not like a specific trend of they're consistently doing this um they're not solely a zone team they're not consistently only sending four rushers or a really heavy blitz team or whatever it's as spaced out as it comes they vary up their personnels and everything so um, that's kind of where the Fangio scheme comes in and itself. It's just, it throws a lot at you. And, and one of the things I think to that, uh, is just because like when they lost Von Miller, they had to adjust. And I think that Fangio is probably one of the, and again, I might be biased here because I've, I've watched him for two years. So I'm, I'm a big fan, but I think he does a really good job of adjusting to the talent he has on hand to try and make the most of what he has. Uh, one thing I noticed last year that was actually kind of caught my eye is, I, we get caught up in like if a guy is a 3-4 team or a 4-3 team, and I'm going to ask you about this a little bit in a second, but the Broncos, even though they're a 3-4 team under Fangio, they only ran base defense 25% of the time. They were running nickel or dime 75% of the time. So that for everybody listening, that means they had five corners or more on the field 75% of the time last year. And, you yep. think, and, and okay. yeah, that's the way that the NFL's moved these days. Um, you hear teams all the time, and, and you even hear – uh, I know you hear like those like training camp interviews with defensive linemen that maybe they're like switching from three, four to four, three and reporters always interested. Like, how are you going to adjust to that? And the main thing I hear all the time is it's really not much of a change because we're in, in nickel so much, you know, like I'm, I'm, we're going four down linemen or uh, we're kind of in this, this is more our base package these days. Like just with the prevalence of passing offenses um, and uh, and how spread out things have gotten 11 personnel on offense. You have to counter with nickel on defense. That's just kind of the way things move these days. And so one question I have, and again, sorry if it's kind of like all over, but like one question I have for you with that then, because um, reading the book, and I've, I've noticed this like in scouting overall, is there's players that fit better as like a, like you hear like he fits better as an edge and an even front. But if if you're running nickel and most nickel defenses in today's NFL are a four-two-five, where you'll have, four players on the line, two backers off, and then the DBs. Um, does that still count as an even front? Or are we then – because in my mind, I think it is. But at the same time, like I know with Fangio, he's still going to ask those edge players to drop into space quite a bit. Um, I know Malik Reed played, I want to say, close to 100 coverage snaps last year, but I might be wrong. I don't have the number in front of me. But 
um, in terms of like even front versus odd front, when you're looking at like edge players or defensive linemen, uh, is it kind of blurring the line a little bit because there's so much nickel? Yeah, for sure. And and you see that it's kind of take everything that you see with those one liners and stuff with offensive linemen, with D linemen, with their alignments and stuff with a grain of salt, just because um, we can grade a guy or, or say that he best fits as like an even front defensive lineman or whatever, um, or a two gapper versus a one gap or something like that. But um, as we just discussed, you're going to have to do both. And so we're mostly just talking about the the profile that you're looking at, um, kind of the stereotype of what you think of when you when you see a two gapping interior defensive lineman, like you have an image of what that looks like, knowing that they might not get drafted to that kind of scheme. Or even if you do, you're not going to be doing that 100% of the time. Um, I mean, you've got like guys on Ohio State's offensive line that's just sticking out in my head that you've got uh, Wyatt Davis is a, the guard for Ohio State and then Josh Myers is the center. Josh Myers fits much better as a zone blocker, it's stereotypically, and Ohio State ran as a, mostly a zone blocking scheme. Wyatt Davis is going to fit much better in a power scheme. That's just the kind of player that he is, but he played his whole career in Ohio State's zone offense. So, I mean, it's it's blurring the lines. We're just we're giving you the profile of what that player will look like, yeah. knowing that they're going to need to do both. Yeah. No, I and and, and I understand. I just I, it's good to hear from you because again, like I, I I feel like I fight that a lot on both Twitter and then like a lot of my posts are like when I'm breaking down players because again, like Fangio in my mind watching it for the last two years, there's a lot of hybrid stuff going on. Um, when Fangio was first hired, I thought the Broncos were going to look at really big defensive tackles because he had big defensive tackles with the Bears. And then they drafted Draymond Jones, and he's 285 pounds. So, like, yep. it kind of surprised me at the time. And, like, over the last couple of years, I've kind of, like, come around to that. Uh, one question that I had for you, I guess, um, just for people listening, like, when you're looking at that, and I, and I want to say that I really like your guide and the fact that it looks at, like, a two-year projection. So it's like on a Super Bowl team, this is how a guy best fits. I love that. I love that you spelt out that's what you're doing because then there's not confusion there. Um, a lot of guides will just say like, this is what he does, but then he comes in the league and immediately he's either less than or better than, you know, he's not exactly what the guide said and it kind of throws you for a loop. But when you're looking at, this is what we're looking at for two years down the road. This is how this guy probably fits best. I like that because it gives me an idea already. Um, but my question is, and I think this will help people listening because the Broncos run so much like hybrid on, on their offensive line, when you say like a guy is best fit as a zone uh, in a zone blocking scheme, my understanding is that means he's more mobile. He doesn't necessarily, he's not necessarily going to get a lot of vertical displacement when he's blocking down, but he's good at getting on a guy and getting in between a guy to keep a, keep to keep the defensive player from getting to the runner or getting for getting to the ball carrier. Whereas like, on a power scheme, that guy is going to be able to move a guy vertically down the field a little bit. Or if in the Broncos case, if they're running like a pin and pull and they're pulling a guard, he'll block down and essentially take out that guy to create space that way. Am I, am I on the mark here? Or am I off? Yeah. So mobility kind of comes in two ways there. Like you talked about, like it, it's tough to say that a player who's immobile has to be a, a gaps game player just because um, he's not going to be running like wide zones and really flowing with the line and everything. But when you're running gap scheme stuff, that naturally you need to be able to pull, you need to be able to flip your hips and seal, um, you need to be able to, to combo up to the second level still. So um, there's still those elements. But yeah, typically your, your zone blocker is going to be a bit lighter, um, lighter on their feet, able to move laterally. You don't need to get that vertical vertical displacement that you're talking about. But um, smart, intelligent players need to be able to, to read where they're moving to, get up to the second level intelligently. Um, and then your gap scheme guys are, again, going to have to have that load behind them, down blocking, um, come down hard, pull hard, 
work together with their offensive line really well. You're pointing out stuff more pre-snap, whereas zone blocking is more post-snap reads and everything. Um, so again, there is a bit of a, a, a prototype of what that player looks like just from a physical standpoint and, uh, and what you think of that guy looks like, which we for sure follow. I mean, like that's, yeah. that's kind of what those one-liners are. Um, but again, like saying a player's immobile necessarily isn't always going to be the case and, and vice versa. Definitely. Uh, so, and then the other, the other side of this, cause again, I, I want to try and, but my understanding is always that zone coverage to, to most, most of the time, essentially it eventually becomes quasi man anyway because you're essentially going to end up on a guy um and the fact that like there's also there's zone there's zone match there's man there's man match but when you're scouting a guy and trying to figure out how he best fits for either zone or man like how what do you guys look for and what kind of like stands out to you yeah so you're right that that it depends on the scheme that that zone can turn into man in a lot of cases um and man can even turn into zone a lot of cases if you're passing things off, if you're going against a lot of trips formations and you're you're working inside outs and you're taking first in, first out and things like that. You can pass stuff off and make it look like zone. And uh, coverages are the most difficult thing that we do here with charting. We can get that out of the way first and foremost. It's it's the most difficult thing to chart from a, an all-22 perspective, from a broadcast perspective. It's just really tough to tell what the intent of certain plays are based on um, you can have a call pre-snap, and then based on what happens during the play, uh, it can look completely different from what's drawn up on a whiteboard for what that play to look like. Um, but yeah, typically, again, we're just talking generalities here. Zone corners are going to be more um, opening up to the field, reading the quarterback's eyes, intelligent, have to keep their head on a swivel, communicate with their players inside and, and deeper behind them. Um, passing things off. You have to stick to a guy to a certain point, like follow him and then pass it off and fall back, back to your area. Um, knowing when to pass off and knowing when to commit if nobody else is coming into your area. It's a lot of peripheral vision and things like that. Um, man coverage is typically seen as, at least in scouting terms, more of the, um, certainly the more uh, desired trait um, for players. If you can be, you can kind of, the, the old adage that you can find a zone corner anywhere. Yep. Um, it's really hard to find man corners. That's the, the, that's the side that takes the athleticism that takes just like the innate ability to um, reactive athleticism is the thing that we talk about all the time. Um, two of the hardest positions in football that I like to talk about that we like to talk about in our scout school, we have a weekly scout school for leading up to the handbook here during the year um, to talk about scouting and everything with our first years. Um, cool. Two of the tough, toughest positions in all of sports are offensive line and cornerback because those two positions in the most crucial aspect of the game, which is the passing game, have to be as athletic as anybody on the field moving backwards. It's the hardest thing out there. And so being that reactive athlete, not knowing what's coming and be able to, to adjust um, – athletically quickness uh it just it, it takes a more innate feel whereas zone is a more football intelligence it's more instincts versus intelligence maybe is is a way to talk about that where um you're more reacting to a broader sense of things whereas obviously man coverage is a one-on-one -on -one, mm -hmm. um keeping your eyes on a guy and obviously there's inside shades outside shades and all that stuff but at its core that's that's basically the what we're talking about there and so and again, this is kind of this might be a tangent off this. So, like when people kind of look at the Fangio defense and say it de-emphasizes corners, it's because in the most of the time people think about the fact that Fangio runs quite a bit of zone and zone off. So it's not even like a lot of press. <clears throat> He's looking for corners who can play in space and just react. Yep. 
Oh. Yeah, we were talking about the, the Colts recently as well. Um, I was talking about the Colts with somebody, and the Colts are obviously very cover two heavy these days. They might be the most cover two heavy team in the NFL these days. Um, and that's reflected in the past few years. They haven't spent highly in free agency on a cornerback. They haven't drafted a cornerback high. They know what they're looking for. Um, and they're just looking for guys that fit that scheme. And, and you can find those guys a bit more more uh, just out in, out in the world as zone corners. But again, it, it takes a certain kind of guy to do that at a high level for sure. Um, that bend but don't break mentality, that physical mentality to you're allowing catches and you need to be able to make tackles. That's obviously a, a coveted trait, whereas man coverage is maybe not as necessary. So um, all that stuff kind of plays into it. Uh, so then one other question I have kind of just off this before we kind of like really dig into like the, the actual meat of this, because I want to talk to you about players. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about players. Uh, but I, I just have a question because of safety stuff. And like, and again, we'll touch on safety specifically. But, like, in this kind of defense, like the Colts defense or, like, a Fangio defense or the Rams under Staley, because the corners are playing off, do you think, especially, like, both the Staley defense and the Fangio defense, because they play so many light boxes, do you think that increases the emphasis that you need good safeties? Or do you think safeties are are less desirable or less, like, are, are they still important or are they less important, more important, do you think, in, like, a too-high type system? It's an interesting question. Um there's a case to be made that they're more important in a too high system. Um, even though you're covering less space, that means you're more active. Your safeties are more active when they're covering less space from that aspect. Um, if you have, if you're running a cover one scheme or a cover three, whatever, uh, yeah. single high. close. Yeah. Single high middle field close. Um, that middle safety is obviously very important just in terms of needing the presence of being rangy and having the ability to get to the sidelines. But more often than not, they're they're a passive player. They're not being involved in the game. It's just their their presence out there, which way that they're drifting on a on a deep concept, a scissors concept, something like that. Which way they're drifting will will lead you one way or the other downfield. But um, cover two corner or cover two safeties are inherently more active in that they have more things to come up on. Cover four safeties are obviously much more active with the backside coming up and everything. Um, there's there's just a lot more involvement with with safeties when you're running a too high scheme, um, whereas one of those safeties obviously one of them is going to be coming down in the box in a in a middle field closed concept. Um, that player is going to be more involved in the intermediate area, robbing in the middle of the field, things like that. That that guy's obviously very important. Um, but then that deeper guy is more passive. Whereas if you have two guys back there, you're taking away more of the field. You're having to certainly take away those sidelines. You have to watch the middle of the field. Um, there's more communication going on with their corners on either side. Um, so, yeah, there's a case being made for sure that that cover two safeties or two high safeties in general um, are more necessary for both of them to be uh, impact players. I And I guess this is a good transition because lately there's been a lot of discussion for Broncos fans about the fact that, like, Justin Simmons just got the franchise tag. And he's making a little bit more than I think he's making a little bit under 14 million on the franchise tag right now. Kareem Jackson, as of right now, is the fifth highest paid safety in football, I believe. I had to have to double check, but the last I checked, he was. So there's been some talk that the Broncos have the most expensive safety duo in the league. Um, there's been some talk that the Broncos' new GM may either cut Kareem Jackson, force a restructure move on in one way or another. So I've been trying to kind of keep an eye on like what safeties could make sense for this kind of system. Um, and again, because the Broncos run so much nickel and dime, like there's a definitely a possibility that they could draft a guy this year and do what 
Vic Fangio did with Will Parks in the past where he could put him in the slot. Um, are there any guys that really jump out to you like that? I'm looking through the guide. I definitely found a few, but I, I want to hear what you think. Yeah. So I mean, we're just looking at the top guys for safeties there. Um, Trayvon Morgs, our top safety. I think our top two safeties are the two TCU guys who actually run a, a two high system. So that would be kind of the first place to go there. Um, Morgs, more of the free safety, more of the deeper guy in Ardarius Washington, even though his size wouldn't tell you he's like five, seven, five, eight, um, packs a punch. He's more of the strong safety type, but again, they play in that too high system. So, um, yeah, Morg is is far and away our top safety, and then we have a number of guys at that six seven range just behind that that are solid starters. One, uh, it's interesting because again, at this point, like I've I've tried to keep up with a lot of different takes on the classes, just because like it helps me to kind of build my own opinion. Uh, and I've seen like Ardarius Washington, like the view on him is all over the board, and I and I like I like him. I've watched him. I've watched Morg too. I've seen some talk that Morg could go as high as like the mid first. Which I mean, that seems really high to me, but like I like him. But uh, but our Darius Washington, like he shows up. You watch more, you can't not notice him. Um. Yep. So the if the league sleeps on him and he slides, like I hope the Broncos capitalize because I get a little. And again, I'm not. I hate comps. Like I'm I'm really bad about this because I really don't like comps very much. Cause I think it misleads people. But I do see hints of like a Kareem Jackson esque type of fit for the Broncos if they were to take him, because again, he's undersized, but he plays a lot bigger than his size. Except when he ends up meeting. Lyman, like when he meets Lyman, they're trying to block him. He does get blocked. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things where Ardarius Washington, he played strong safety in college. He might have to play more of a free safety role moving forward. Um, maybe stay in that too high system deeper as opposed to uh, less aggressive coming up or less relied upon in the box, things like that. At his size, it's just going to be tough to hold up like that. But um, yeah, more uh, for, for being that free safety type in that cover two system, the on-ball production is what you're looking for there. Um, and he made a ton of it. Ardarius Washington maybe didn't have the ball production, but he had the tackles, he had the hard hits. Um, at his size, just a feisty dude, physical, twitchy. Um, so, yeah, those are our top two guys. A number, a few other guys that are played in cover two schemes that are just two high systems that I noted uh, at the top of our board there. Paris Ford uh, was interchangeable at Pitt uh, in their two high scheme. Uh, physical, athletic, great ball skills. Uh, sometimes takes two aggressive angles, but um, but he's the guy who played in that too high system. And then Richard LeCount at Georgia, another really good athlete, communicator in the back end, which is what you're looking for for those guys for sure. Um, physical against the run, too high range. Um, not the most, not the fastest guy, uh, man coverage and consistencies and things like that. But um, if you're looking for guys that are, are transitioning from that same style of defense, uh, at least in the deep third, then those are some some of our top guys that we all graded. Again, um, just to go back and touch on that real quick, our grading system that we use is a role-based grading system, which is not what everybody uses. I was just um, going to touch on this. <clears throat> yeah. No, you can explain it better uh, than me. But you you actually have uh, 14 safeties that are graded as a low-end starter. So, like, I, I wanted <clears throat> to actually ask you about this. So, Yeah, so it's – A, it's tough doing the role-based grading that we do because we aren't a team – so we try to do it. We're naturally going to have a lot of running backs, a lot of receivers, a lot of safeties, a lot of cornerbacks that grade out as low-end starters, but we're grading them from a generic standpoint that some team in the NFL that runs the scheme that this guy would fit in could see this guy as a low-end starter. He's not going to be a starter for everybody. Um, I mean, you hear in the NFL teams have 150, 175 less than that sometimes much less than that draft boards, total draft players that they're, that they're looking at. 
Um, obviously, our handbook has 300 plus players in it. So um, just off that alone, that's that's a ton more players than NFL teams do. But yeah, so we're, we're doing role based grading, which is um, one of the things that Matt learned in the NFL. It's kind of the Patriots style of grading um, that a lot of the, the NFL has adopted these days as opposed to round based grading. So we don't really talk in terms of a first round player, or second round player. Um, we think that could be pretty subjective, uh, especially okay. when you're talking draft to draft year to year, um, that changes. And so, um, a big part of our scout school and just everything that we talk about with our first years to, to get on the same page with is this language that we're talking, understanding what a, uh, what good is in the NFL, what plays in the NFL. Um, and then again, it's, it's, it can be tough because we're just, like I said, generically, a, a nondescript defense that we're running here. Um, so we're going to have a lot of maybe six, four low end starting cornerbacks that certainly will not be low end starting cornerbacks for everybody in the NFL. They might be just zone players or might just be inside players or outside players. You're not looking for that in the NFL. Um, but yeah, so it goes on down from six, seven and up are solid starters, seven, oh, and above are the elite players. Um, you get from that six six to six two range. You're talking about either low end starters or uh, versatile backups, um, all kind of role fits. So you're talking about like a just a slot only receiver or an outside only cornerback. Um, you start talking about as you get further down, like box safeties versus um, cornerback safety hybrids. You're talking about uh, like versatile defensive linemen that can play maybe some nose in some three tech or, or bouncing inside outside linebackers that can interchange between Mike and will all that stuff. So um, that's kind of what we're working with here, which is why the handbook is so big because we're not, we're not talking in specific terms to one team. Well, and one thing I really like about it too is uh, obviously one thing I do and I do, I do way too many mock draft machines, but so like if I'm, if I'm looking at say the giants and I know that the giants don't run the same defense as the Broncos do, I can still see who they pick and then look at like, oh yeah, that guy makes sense as a starter for this, their scheme. So it, it gives you, it gives you an idea of both how that guy fits in the role that you guys see him fitting. in. And I like that. I like that a lot. It's, it's informative, even if it isn't just fitting for my team. And it also helps me to like, let's say the Broncos hire a new coach next year. I could get, go back and look at this and say, well, this guy makes more sense for this scheme. Now he might be a great fit and he could be a better player because of it. Yep. hundred percent. Uh, yeah. Like I said, it can be tough, um, when so many players are, are low end starters or, um, you kind of hear the draft conversation around this guy, there's no way this guy's going this high or whatever. And, and it's, again, it's all just schematic fits that we aren't privy to. Um, we just can see the traits and can like fall in love with a certain player if he gets taken in the right scheme. And a lot of, I mean, we all know that players don't get taken in the right scheme all, often. Um, there's players that just kind of fizzle out because they weren't put in the right system and, and it just wasn't the right fit for whatever reason, maybe not even schematically, but um, players flame out for a number of different reasons. But uh, just in terms of on the field, we're grading what we see on the field. We take injuries out of it. We take everything we don't, we're not in, in interviews and everything. Like we're just grading on the film. This is what we see. And we give you these one-liners, these, last word sections of projections to what scheme they fit in best that we think. Well, and, and I, the other thing about this too, that I think is really good is scheme obviously matters. And it, and it because the Broncos GM slash coaching situation is kind of really, it feels kind of fluid right now because no one knows if Fangio is going to last the year because like he's on the hot seat essentially, because there's a new boss. I've had a lot of people tell me like, Oh, well scheme fit might not even matter to George Payton. I don't think that's true at all because 
no GM in the right mind is going to draft a guy that doesn't fit in the system for the coach he has employed, right? Like that doesn't make any sense. I mean, maybe. You would hope. Yeah, it doesn't it, always work that way. Yeah, that, that spells like doom for the <laughs> both the player and the coach. I I would think. Um, but one question I have about that for you, and I know like I've I've asked a few people this, so I just I got to get what you think about it and how you guys handle this. COVID this year, obviously, it impacted everybody. Um, and and again, I'm. I've said this a hundred times already, but like, I don't blame any player for opting out of the season. I'm sure you don't either. Like, obviously like they got to do what's right for them, but from a scouting and an evaluation perspective, it makes it hard because some players like, and, and I, the p- first player that comes to mind for me is Walker little, like we have so little tape of him and it's so long ago that it's a lot of projection. And and I saw in your guide, like I know uh, Bryce Rossler did a, did a lot of this. There's a few of these where he's like, this is what I project the guy. Gregory Rousseau. He, he mentions this. This is, he shows the traits that with a year of development, I project that this is where he's going to be. Um, is that kind of like the best way you guys try to approach it? Or like, how do you guys, like, how'd you view it? Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Yeah, so there's a couple things to unpack there. Um, Yeah, obviously we're grading everything to a second year, um, which kind of takes out the the rookie struggles and whatever. You're just saying like with a year of development moving forward, this is how we see this player. Certainly doesn't always work out that way, but this is just what we're seeing in the NFL. We're, we're again, we're trying to get everybody on the same page with understanding what that is, and um, and that's the other thing with this, with all these first years coming in. We have we have a, a massive new group of guys every year that come in that all have different opinions on stuff. So um, while Nate and I are kind of the the overarching uh, national scouts, as we say, that kind of um can finalize this stuff and tweak it up and everything like at the end of the day i want this guy's report to sound like he wrote it um and yeah it's it's a lot of different opinions that go in there so um that's one side of things but yeah so we're grading to the second year which can make first year struggles difficult to to project and things like that but um yeah as for the draft process it's going to be fascinating this year not just the pre-draft process but the whole season so last year was um maybe not as crazy as people made it out to be. Obviously things hit uh, pretty much a year ago now. Um, But at that point, senior bowl had happened, combine had happened. You had the whole season where scouts were on the road. That's the big thing that I would say is different from this year. Um, The only thing that it took out last year, which uh, was basically the part that could be taken out in the first place. Our our boss, Matt Minicharian always talks about um, what this handbook is in itself is the, January, February draft board, which he always learned in the NFL is the purest form of your draft board. He said he had uh, Michael Lombardi and all these uh, mentors of his in the NFL would say, take a look at it now in January, February, because this is the best it's going to look. It's about to get torn to shreds in the next few months just because we're always going to overthink things. We're going to have the the combine come in. we're going to have all the, the scuttlebutt leading up to the month of the draft and pro days and, and conversations going back and forth. And you're just rewatching guys. And in its purest form is that January draft board, which is what we tried this to be, which is why we always get this out before the combine every year. That's kind of the point. Um, but yeah, the difficult thing this year is going to be the scouts haven't been on the road. Um, getting that in-person scouting of guys is always so crucial for 
just getting a visual on their their body type, how they move. Um, not to mention things like uh, on the sideline pregame, on the sideline during the game, especially for leadership positions like quarterback and everything. Um, that stuff can really matter, and especially that face to face time as well when you're in the in the building and you're um, talking to trainers and everything like that. It, it's just going to be difficult with Zoom. Obviously, things are are going to go off without a hitch, but I just think. Um, I expect this draft to be the most varied in terms of um, public perception and just internal perception in the NFL of just opinions are going to be all over the place and expected value of players is going to be all over the place because there just hasn't been that ability to meet together and, and kind of trade notes and and, uh, and it's going to be more on the field scouting than ever before just from the tape copy. So to me, that makes your guide even more valuable. Would hope so. Yeah, that's that's what it's built for for sure. We uh, every year we write the book and then um, the book's out there when we're watching the combine and you give this guy a, a high speed grade or whatever and then he runs a slow forty and you're upset. But then you're thinking to yourself, well, the speed grade that we gave him is a play speed, so it's yep. it's inherently not timed speed. It's play speed. Like a guy like Talano Hufanga, I gave him a, a seven for play speed, which means he's very good play speed. He's not going to time that fast. He's gonna be. He's gonna time sufficiently. He's gonna time fine. But dude plays with the hair on fire. Like he's just all over the place. So that's different from time speed. But inherently, like um, if you expect a guy to run fast and he doesn't run fast, then what are you gonna do? The handbook's out already. But that's what the point is. We're we're doing this based on the film. It, well, and one of the things I learned in the scouting academy is like obviously the play speed's more important anyway, and we overthink it. And some again, granted, some guys don't end up playing as fast as we think they will based on like what the tape looked at college. <laughs> but by and large, like guys who play fast in college, like they're playing fast because they're reading it fast and they're able to anticipate and get where they need to be. So like that's more important to me than if a guy runs a four three forty. But yep. we'll overdraft a guy based on if he runs a four three forty. And this year the, they're they're going out like water. The- so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, all the the time stuff at pro days. It's uh, like I see all these times come in, and you just take them all with a million grains of salt. Like you, I just don't know what to make with any of that, as you do every year with pro day stuff. But at least you always have the combine to fall back on. There's no standardized testing this year, so who knows? Uh, one one position group I got to get your take on, and kind of like really kind of dig in on. Um, obviously cornerback. The Broncos' most obvious need is cornerback. Um, I think I I would argue that quarterback is as big a need. But the most obvious need is definitely corner. The Broncos had 10 corners end up on uh, – they played 10 different corners last year. Uh, after cutting A.J. Boye, as of right now, they're counting on Michael Ojemudie, who got benched at one point last year, Essing Bassi, who got benched and eventually tore his ACL, and Bryce Callahan, who has never played in a full season in his career. So it's a desperate need. Um, I saw, like in your in your book, first of all, you guys have 21 corners with a 6.4 or higher. Um, and I looked at the, it's a, a number three CB or more. So like, and obviously in a nickel league, that means essentially they're going to be playing quite a bit is what you guys see. And granted, not all those are going to be fits for Fangio, but still like this, this is a decent corner class for Fangio's system. Probably. Uh, one question I have at the top, um, just because you guys have Patrick Sertan as your best corner. Um, a lot of, I, I actually thought Caleb Farley might be a better fit because I saw him play more off. Um, and I didn't get to see as much as Patrick, Patrick Sertan playing off. I don't know if I'm just overthinking that. What do you, what do you think? Like, do you think Patrick Sertan could be a good fit at nine if they did go that way? Should they go Farley? Like, what, what are you thinking? I know I threw a Yeah, so, there. no, no, it's interesting. And and I had kind of looked into that as well because you mentioned that uh, that Broncos don't press a ton. 
Um, and obviously the top two corners in this class for us are, are Patrick Sutan and JC Horn, who were also the top two in the class with press last year. Um, just in turn, both of them were in press over 50% of the time. Um, again, that doesn't mean that they're, they're stylistically not a fit or that takes them out of consideration or anything. They're still solid players and off and they're both really good in zone. So that just that in itself, it makes them probably, I mean, who knows, but like they could still be on their board just for that reason. Um, but they were just used differently from how the, the Broncos play players. So, um, but yeah, so those two would be the more zone players. Sertan's one of the better zone corners in the draft. Uh, Horn is extremely physical, uh, really good zone player, comes up hard. Uh, Sertan's obviously got the pedigree, played three years in Nick Saban's defense, football intelligence like crazy. Um, and then Farley is going to be the more um, man coverage, but just in general, like the reactive athlete. He's the more smooth um fluid mover the kind of the skinnier body maybe less physical than horn but um the more natural cover corner would be caleb farley um and played more off you're right so um yeah it's it's it'd be interesting to see how they break those guys down because again of how multiple angios defenses how they don't use press but i don't think like i said that should take them out of consideration just because they were used in press a lot um and the combination of zone and man there, like it'll be interesting to see how that works out. But yeah, I, I would not count Sertan out for sure at nine. Um, I'm a big fan of Horn. I think he could could uh, maybe not at nine, but somewhere in the middle of first for sure. Yeah, and, and that's that's what I thought when I was watching Horn too. Is I, I really liked him. I don't know necessarily that the Broncos are going to consider him that high, but I do really like him. I think he's going to be a good pro if he goes to the right right team. The thing with Sertan that I keep, and again, this is. I keep I'm at the point now where I'm overthinking Sertan versus Farley because I think like if the Bron if George Payton has any sort of hesitation about what he's gonna do next year, Sertan to me makes more sense because like Sertan feels like a really safe projection into the league. Like if, if Sertan quote unquote fails, like he's still gonna probably be a pretty good corner. He just won't be an elite corner. Whereas like Farley, because they have the year off, it's kind of like more of a we don't know. Like I, I I'm optimistic, but we don't know as much. Uh but Looking farther down the board, I like Greg Newsom a lot. Um, I did see that, and and this is another thing I really like about your guide that, again, I recommend you guys check this out because I haven't found a lot of this information elsewhere. You guys did a really, really great job of informing the reader of the injury questions about players. And again, you didn't let it you didn't let it impact your grades, but you do make note of it. For So for me, like if I'm looking at Greg Newsom, I now know that he actually got hurt. And it, it, it's informative because like I would have to go dig that up on my own otherwise, and it's right there in front of me. Yeah, so uh, our injury department is fantastic. John Barros runs our injury department, um, evaluates every injury every year um, on film and breaks it down. And so in the handbook, we also have injury designations um, at the top of some of the reports that break down if you're currently injured or long-term injury risk. Um, Newsom did not rece receive any of those, but I did find it worthy notable because I wrote Greg Newsom's report. And I was one of the two people that wrote his report. So um, very comfortable. I'm a big fan of Greg Newsom. I think he's awesome. Um, but he might not have long-term injury risk, but he definitely got banged up a ton. Like it was, it was notable that he just has durability concerns where, um, would leave a game here and there because of and getting nicked up somehow and just nothing major, but just, it happened too often. And it was notable enough that I felt it was worthy putting in a scouting report. But, um, like for example, you look at Ohio state game in the, I think it was the big 10, one of the two times they played him. I think it was big 10 championship. Um, absolutely shut down left side of the field in that first half. He was incredible. Um, I mean, going up against Olave and, and all those guys are, are just fantastic. And, and he shut them down. I, I, Greg Newsom's 
well-rounded, aggressive at the catch point. Um, sometimes too aggressive, definitely gets penalized too much. Um, but just hyper competitive dude. He plays in zone and man, he's just awesome. Um, and then he got hurt. The one time that I watched him lose a rep, quote unquote, happened to be the play where he, I think it was a hamstring, maybe he nicked up a hamstring or something, missed the rest of the game and the whole field opened up for Ohio state. And, and that was it. So um, he didn't even get tried that until he, he got hurt. So um, yeah, Greg Newsom's, I would have said when the handbook came out, he's underrated. We had him as our number four corner when the handbook got published and finalized. And I've heard a ton of love for him lately. And he's our number four corner. Um, I'm a big fan of his and obviously he had a big pro day the other day. Again, like I said, take that with a grain of salt, but ran fast. Um, he's got the whole thing. He's got the whole package. So I like him a lot. Uh, one other player that I really like, like I've, I've been, intri- so I thought I was kind of ahead of the curve. Cause again, I like, I like the drive networks mock machine quite a bit. I, I, I was taking Marco Wilson in like the day three range forever thinking I'm really clever because no one else is onto him. And then you guys actually have him pretty high. Uh, what do you think? What do you think of him? Like from what you guys have said? Um, I think he's ninth on your board. If I remember, um, again, I like him. I know a lot of people don't know about him, which is crazy to me. Um, inside versatility, he can tackle. He's, I mean, he's a little smaller, but like, he's good. Yep. Yeah. No, we fast and rangy, uh, transitions really well, sees the field. We have him as a, a number three cornerback at the next level, but yeah, he can play both inside and out, um, which is a different level projection. It's a different grade that we give than, uh, than just six, four guys who are just outside or just inside. Um, if you're a number three corner, but you have that versatility, then that bumps you up naturally. So, um, again, we're just basing all these on, on roles at the next level. Definitely. Um, but he's got the long speed. He's got the ability to transition. Uh, he can play in press man, which is what you're looking for in the NFL. Guys that can do that first and foremost. Typically, you think they can play other stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not a great tackler. Doesn't have a ton of on-ball production. Um, not going to come up and, and hit you in run support necessarily. But, um, again, when you're talking about just guys who are press man corners, fast and rangy, um, as just the baseline ability there that'll play at the next level and then you can hopefully work around the rest of the stuff is there is there any other guy again like broncos country likes to do this like if a corner can't tackle he can't play for fangio i think that's a little overblown because like we've seen the broncos take other guys who don't aren't necessarily great tacklers but but i but i do know that that is something that as soon as they'll hear that about marco wilson someone's gonna tell me oh he doesn't fit um but I like uh, if he. I'm not. I'm not gonna be able to pronounce his name right. I've, I've read it a million times. Efiti Melifanu. Melifanu. Mm-hmm. I like him. Yep. Um, from Syracuse. Do you think he would make sense for like a Fangio defense? I could see that. Uh, again, I'm I'm picturing Fangio's defense is just guys that with all the different stuff they do and and the zone that they run and everything. Just you need smart, intelligent guys. And Melifanu, first and foremost, is a super high IQ football player, reactive athlete as well. Um, closes quickly, high football IQ, played at Syracuse, closes fast. That's another one of his strengths as well. Um, not super physical at the line, and he misses some of his opportunities. But, uh, yeah, we were really high on him. Right, right when you get past that 6-7 range of, of starting caliber, uh, like true number two, number one or number two players, cornerbacks, and you start getting into maybe a bit more of the role-specific stuff, he's right there, the, the only dude at the 6-6 level for us. Um Size and athleticism to slide in the slot if needed, but better use on the outside. Um, 
size, speed, and toughness combination. That's what you're looking for. So again, he was the only guy in that six six range for us. So he's just a, he just missed that six seven um, cutoff, but we liked him a lot. Oh, uh, and then I, I like I said when I was going through your guide, I actually wrote down some other guys. Um, throw them out there just because these these guys caught my eyes. Uh, Darren Hall. Uh, and I have I actually have not looked at him yet, but I saw him in your guide, and I'm, he's on my list now to go check out. Um, Elijah Molden, I've been on Elijah Molden forever. Like he's one of those guys that like, as soon as I saw his tape, I was like, yeah, it's a Fangio corner. Um, and I've liked Paulson Adebo since last year. Um, I know he opted out and we haven't gotten his tape. So like, I actually have seen him, you know, before the season started. Um, I know the opt out might end up hurting his draft stock, but he's another one of those guys that like, I like the idea of the Broncos getting him. Um, he seems to make sense. Um, and then, and I've had, I, I want to ask you about him just because I've seen some talk about him. Aaron Robinson, um, I didn't know he had a concussion that actually like knocked him out of like a significant stretch of time. But do you think Aaron Robinson might make sense for the Broncos? Uh, he could, yeah. So he's uh, in the six five range for us, um, inside or outside press man guy. Again, that's what you're looking for. He can play his own as well. Um, yeah, I could see that for sure. And then going back to Paulson Debo is a guy that I've written down as well. I love talking about Paulson Debo. He's one of my favorites in this class. Um, I think some more zone specific team is going to fall in love with him and take him super early in the draft. Um, I just think somebody's going to to take notice of these ball skills. Like there, it's as elite ball production as you'll find in a collegiate corner. For only having played one and a half seasons, he got hurt towards the end of 2019 and he opted out of 2020. So people forget about him, but. Um, had eight picks, I think like over 25 other pass breakups uh, beyond the interceptions in just 21 starts, I think. Um, he's a former receiver. He was a two-way star at, uh, in high school before he got to Stanford. So it's just natural ball skills. He's super long. Um, comes down in, in run support really aggressively, but he'll miss a lot of tackles. But um, he might be a candidate to move to safety as well. He's not the quickest guy, but he just finds a way to, to get his hands on balls at a ridiculous clip. The, the tackle part, I, I have to ask about, do you, do you think that's something that can improve with like coaching or do you think it's like, because again, like if he's an aggressive run filler, but he's missing tackles, like to me, that sounds more like a technique type issue, not necessarily an effort issue. Um, yeah, and that's, sure. what I, that's what I saw too. But like, I wanted to get your take on it. You, you probably studied it more than I have. Yeah. He's uh his size would suggest he's stronger than he actually is. So that would be something that he can maybe improve on. Um, he does have the willingness to come downhill, but he doesn't show the willingness to kind of break through blocking tackles, like really interested receivers that are blocking him. Um, he's more willing to like, let them come to him and stuff, which is the stuff that you need to see improve, improvement on. But, um, when he's used as a run blitzer, which he did a decent amount, um, when he's left free coming downhill, he'll throw his body around. He just doesn't have the technique to do so, which is what you're looking for more so than the opposite. If a guy's just totally uninterested, um, but he's really strong and maybe has the ability to do so. Um, you got to kind of coach him up to, to do that and whatever. But if, if you've got the, the downhill mentality, at least to get there. Um, and again, it depends on the defense. Like some teams don't utilize their, their corners at all in, in, uh, in tackling situations and run support. Some teams really rely upon it. And especially when you're talking about a zone corner, you're going to need to be able to be physical. Um, so he at least has the willingness to, to do so in, in, when he's uncovered. Um, has the size that you would suggest he has the strength to bring guys down, and, and he has shown that. But, um, again, it's just kind of putting together the, some of those parts. Definitely. Yeah, it's one of those things that I, I, I try to keep in mind when I'm watching guys what's teachable versus what's not. 
And that's one of those things that, like, for me with Paulson Debo, like, you'll read it, like, not yours, but, like, you'll read scouting reports that say, like, oh, he's not a great tackler. But then you think to yourself, it's like, okay, if is it, just because he didn't do it well, does that not mean that he can figure it out? So, like, again, he's one of those guys, like, I've been – he's one of my guys. Like, I, I'm, I've been pretty excited and hope that Broncos kind of consider him. Uh, one guy they actually brought in for a virtual, uh, like, interview that we know about already is uh, – thanks to Justin Mello. I got to say that because Justin Mello kind of, like, he lets me know this, which is always awesome. Um, but the Broncos have talked to Trill Williams. Um, I saw that you guys looked at him as, like, a slot corner um, in a man scheme or maybe a, a free safety. Uh, if the Broncos brought him in, do you think they might be looking at him to maybe be like kind of the heir apparent for like Kareem Jackson, or maybe is he like a nickel? Uh, yeah. So he's. It's interesting because yeah, we do have him in that six two range. We're moving on a bit further down. Who again? He's going to be a backup, but we grade him as a guy who can play corner or safety. Have that true position flexibility. Um, I do think a Debo could be that as well. Some teams could grade him as a safety, but I think I think of him as a bit higher than a, a 6'2", had him been a 6'4", number three start on the outside. Um, yeah, Trill Williams, we had him as a, a slot corner in a man coverage scheme, um, but he also has the versatility to be used as a free safety on the back end. Um, big body, uh, played in Syracuse's defense there, had a couple injury issues, but sneaky athleticism, uh, good reactive athleticism in short areas. Um, man coverage skills, again, which is what you're looking for, the ball production, the toughness. Um, but, again, he's not that high-end tackler. He's not super twitchy as an athlete. Um, and he struggles with eye discipline, which might lead you to believe that he should stay more at corner and just be in that, that man coverage scheme as a slot corner where uh, that eye discipline is, is less necessary. Obviously, it's safety. That's going to be a crucial aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, Syracuse had a, had a really interesting defense. Um, a few guys in the back end there. Yeah. Uh, so then kind of moving to the next, uh, again, but one other position that almost looks like the Broncos are almost definitely going to have to do something at is linebacker just because, uh, well, Alexander Johnson's an RFA. They're almost definitely going to bring him back. Um, Josie Jewell outplayed like what everyone expected him to last year when he had to play. But at the same time, like he's athletically limited. I, I, like if you could, I think the team would like to upgrade on him. And even if they don't, both Alexander Johnson, if he's tagged, and Josie Jewell, their contracts expire after this year. So linebacker is almost definitely like something they're going to try and do. Uh, last year, they tried to bring Patrick Queen to the Broncos. They tried to trade up before the Ravens took him. Um, so I keep thinking that they're going to look at a coverage guy. But the other thing is, like, if they lose Alexander Johnson, they may very well end up looking for a guy that kind of fits that profile too. Or he's like an elite run, both, yeah. Yeah, run defender who can blitz. Um, I love Baron Browning. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about with your guide is that you guys split up Mike and Will, and I really like that. Um, how do you kind of go about identifying who is a best fit for Mike and who is a best fit for Will? Just because you don't see that split most other places that do draft breakdown like this. So, yeah. So again, it's another one of those positions that kind of gets the the lines blurred a bit as well. Um, those top two guys for us at Mike are Nick Bolton and, and Baron Browning are the top two Mikes for us. Um, and both of them could be interchangeable to Mike and Will for us. Um, whereas you have more, our higher end guys on the Will side are, are just the higher graded players. Um, again, that's more coveted trait, but um, the difference between the two would be Mikes are more your middle of the defense, your communicators, your quarterback of the defense, um, more box bound players. Uh, guys are going to stay within the box, 
uh, sift between traffic. You're going to work between run gaps and, and you're going to be working downhill on run plays. Um, you're going to be playing the run to the pass. So you're, you're playing on your toes moving forward and then you're reacting moving backwards. Whereas wills are going to be more, uh, they're going to have more responsibility in space. So you're going to kind of keep them cleaner of, of blocking, um, working the weak side of the defense. Obviously, Mike, Will is your weak side. Sam is your strong side. Yep. Um, guys that are going to be staying free of, of blocking, you're going to want to keep them clean for a reason. So their downside is that they're maybe not the most physical guys within the box, um, but they're more athletically gifted. They're more coverage players. Um, you can cover out in the slot. Uh, so that's kind of the different profiles that we're looking at. But again, you have some guys that are interchangeable, like Baron Browning that you mentioned. We said he's an interchangeable guy. Um, we keep using the term he's more athlete than football player, which is definitely kind of the way that we look at him. He's been playing for a long time at Ohio State and, and had an up and down career and been in the lineup and out of the lineup. And um, really all those Ohio State guys, Justin Hilliard and Pete Werner, like all those guys um, rotated through all three of their linebacker spots just constantly. So he has the experience at everything. Um, and with at being such a great athlete, uh, at his size, which is the crazy thing, that's, that's why he's, he's so gifted, um, really good at covering tight ends and running backs, but obviously not covering running backs. So that's why we maybe said his athleticism is going to be a real asset as a Mike, where his coverage responsibility is going to be more like simple hook zones in the middle of the field. His man coverage responsibility is going to be just on tight ends and running backs. When you're a will, your coverage responsibilities are maybe sometimes going to have to be slots and you're going to have more space to, to be thinking about and stuff. So keep him at Mike. Um, let him figure out his instincts in the running game. He has the size to hold up in the box. And then his coverage responsibilities are going to be a bit more refined to Mike responsibilities instead of just all the stuff you have to think about as a will. So – in that to me, like the way you just described it, that to me is what Alexander Johnson is already doing. Like most of his coverage responsibility is hook zone, that kind of stuff. Uh, so like if you drafted a Baron Browning, he might end up essentially being an eventual replacement for an Alexander Johnson. Not necessarily like they might put him at will just because he's the best possible option. But I would think that ideally they're going to probably move him. Uh, if they looked at Patrick Queen last year, and again, like all reports were that they did that he's a will, like he's definitely a will. Uh, so, and, and again, cause like, I, I, and this is like, a Jer, uh, Jeremiah Wuso koromoa has kind of been like, he's a hot topic for Broncos country because again, like a lot of people see him, they're like, he's the Madden linebacker. He's the guy that you use your control. Cause he's so fast, all that stuff. My concern has been with him that because he's a little bit lighter, it might be an issue in like the base three, four, obviously again, if the Broncos are running at 25% of the time, maybe that's not even worth being a concern about, but if they were looking at Patrick queen last year, am I, am I overthinking JOK? No, 100%. He's, he is the most unique guy at that position of the will. He's our number one will. Um, he is super light. He's 215 pounds, I think we have him listed at. Um, some teams I've heard are considering him at safety um, because essentially he played slot corner at, at Notre Dame um, for a lot of the time. I mean, he, he played field-bound uh, will linebacker, meaning that based on the hash, he was either playing in the slot or he was playing – in the box based on where the, the teams were, but he always played to the field um, flipping sides that way, um, which gave him the most space to work within, which is what they wanted to do. And they basically treated him like a slot corner in a lot of states. In a lot of cases, they were not concerned. Notre Dame was uh, one of the highest teams in the country and using base personnel just across the board. They did not like match when teams went 11 personnel or 10 personnel putting three, four receivers on the field. They didn't bring in a cornerback to match that. They just left their base defense. They've done that for a few years now. They had 
Asmar Bilal a couple years ago. And, and guys, every year they bring in another one of these field field linebackers that's basically a slot corner. Um, so their defense is like a 3-4, but it looks like it's a 3-3-5 or whatever. They're really spaced out because um, you got a guy like JOK playing out in the slot all the time. And, yeah, his speed is ridiculous. You see him running downfield with um, – Devonte Smith, like these guys, Alabama, Notre Dame, or uh, Clemson, like when he gets has to go up against these guys, Amari Rogers in the slot and stuff. Um, staying step for step is not the issue with him. I mean, he's he's just natural feel for coverage, um, super comfortable, high end play speed and range, no issues covering backs and tight ends, and even like I said, has the ability to to cover receivers, but uh, his size in the box is going to be an issue. He's instinctual to play the run, and he can sift through traffic when he stays clean, but he's just not going to be the guy that's going to fight off blocks within the box and, and um, do some of those mic responsibility things. So he's, he's kind of like as will as it gets like will plus basically. Cause he's, he's really like, you could view him as a secondary player in a lot of cases. Um, Jeff Dean wrote a support for us and, and said that he could play his entire career in the slot and be totally comfortable. If, if a team wanted to do that, just like transition him to uh, safety if you wanted to. Um, so yeah, he would be kind of the most comfortable coverage guy. Um, but he might not be a, a true linebacker for some teams and he would be the guy that you would take it at nine potentially. Yep. Um, you got guys later in the draft, like Jabril Cox and Zayvon Collins and Zayvon Collins might be still be a first rounder, but maybe event, available at that second round pick, um, that are also two of the top guys, top coverage guys, linebackers in the draft for us. Um, and, uh, that are more that, that actual will linebacker role. And the Broncos have actually talked to Saban Collins, so that's and that he he's a bit better. Like if he has to actually meet blockers, I've I've watched him. Like I I felt pretty comfortable, more comfortable with that than I did with watching JOK do it. Um, my fear, like if the Broncos were to take JOK and try and put him in the box, is that teams would just try and go heavy on him and just try and run right at him. Yeah, that's that's the flip side where you're going. You can stay heavier on defense against lighter defense, uh, lighter offenses because he's so fast and stuff. The flip side of that, the the personnel kind of headache that that gives you is conversely, they're just going to go 12 personnel, 13. They're going to put tight ends in your face and, and run smash mouth right down the middle and, and keep everybody in the box, like not put anybody in the slot for him to cover. You're going to force them to, to play kind of goal line, mix it up in the box, heavy boxes and stuff. Um, so again, I think you can do that. He's, he's super physical. He's very at physical, at least as a finisher. Um, he just hasn't shown that ability to kind of stack and shed the stoutness inside. Um, and even a guy like Zayman Collins, who's kind of the complete opposite physically at 260 pounds, but he's still like the most athletic dude on the field whenever he's out there, which is the crazy part and why he's kind of risen up boards like that. Um, but he even has struggles, more struggles than you'd think at, at 260 pounds with that stack and shed stuff within the box. But you at least, he has the physical profile that you would expect that he can maybe grow into that a bit more than than Cormoa can. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, being 260 pounds and, and putting up the, I think he had four picks this year and um, 19 of his 34 total points this year were in coverage for us. Total points is our kind of our main metric that we use for stuff. Um, so yeah, he's, he's a, he's a special dude. Could, could you, I meant to ask you this at the beginning and I apologize. Could you, can you kind of give like a really like a baseline understanding for how EPA is kind of, cause I've had people ask me that I, I look at it and it's one of those things that's important to me, but like, I'm not a math guy. Uh, first and foremost, I, I, I feel like I try to translate these kind of things for people and I feel like you'd be able to better do it than I can. 
Um, my understanding is basically like obviously higher is better. Yeah. So everything EPA and, and all that stuff kind of comes into total points, which is our proprietary player value metric. Um, you use expected points as the framework for it, but um, it kind of distributes value positively and negatively based on a bunch of different things that go into it based on their impact of the play. Um, all of our charting data, we have, we have multiple different passes that we go through of an offense pass, defense pass. We have participation, which does player alignments on the field, um, kind of factors into like average tackle depth ratings where um, if you're like the slot corner on the left side and the run goes to the right and you still make the tackle, like you get a crazy bonus for that because you have to cross the entire field. Like we chart all that kind of stuff. Um, so with all those factors involved, there's an expected points added and for every play overall as a team. And then it's distributed to every player based on their alignments, based on what was run on the play, um, based on like the intended run gap or where the throw went uh, area of the field. Um, so we can break it down to a, a granular level to each individual player. And then for a more macro level of, of just overall team total points, which is where on the team pages, you can see like our player positional breakdowns, rankings of each of those things and, and stuff like that, or a more micro level of each player um, with his expected points added in man coverage, his total points overall in, in pass coverage, his total points in as a run defender, his total points as a pass rusher, all that stuff. Speaking of average tackle depth, because you brought that up, uh, I, I saw in the guy that uh, Jabril Cox does really good with that. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Uh, and he's a guy, again, he's one of those guys that I've liked a long time because I like linebackers who can cover. Um, when I watched him, I actually got a little bit of uh, the Patrick Queen vibes. It might have just been that he was wearing the LSU Tiger jersey again after transferring from NDSU. But, like, he's another one of those guys. Like, he's not necessarily stout in the box. But at the same time, he's so good at everything else. Might run down plays. But but I like what he could potentially give you next to, like, an Alexander Johnson. Uh, and, again, in the in the guide, it actually says that the computer loved him. Yeah. Yeah, he topped a lot of our – if you look at our – we have leaderboards as well for every position. We have uh, – we added our leaderboards. For anybody who's gotten the book last year, it was, I think, six leaderboards, and we tripled it this year to 18. Uh, so there's a ton of leaderboards in there. I love leaderboards. That's kind of always the thing that I gravitate towards is um, – obviously, you're, you're going to each player page and seeing all the numbers, and it's just a lot of numbers thrown at you. So you kind of need to see it on the on a leaderboard level to, to give some context. So – uh, yeah, Jabril Cox was was loved by a lot of our coverage metrics. Um, yeah, super comfortable in zone coverage, but also excels in man, fluid hips, transitions, uh, sticks to most tight ends, slots, running backs. Um, he also had good pressure rate stats as well, so he can blitz. Um, and then, yeah, your average tackle depth. I think um, Jeremiah Wusikormo was number one in that, and Jabril Cox was up there as well. Um Koromoa obviously is going to get a bit of a bump because he's making tackles in the run game from often more of that slot area. Um, so he's naturally further away from the play than, uh, than Cox being in the box, making a lot of tackles. It's at least more expected 
um, on run plays starting from that area of the field. But uh, yeah, so that's adjusted tackle depth is going to be based on where the tackle is made on the field, yards further downfield or behind the line of scrimmage um, compared to the personnel on the field, the uh, the design run gap of the offensive side of the ball, and then based on in participation where we place that player um, positionally, whether he was like where he is in the box um, versus maybe he was bumped out in the slot. Like we said, if he's like on the edge on the right side and the run's going to the opposite side, D-gap, you make a tackle on that, that's, that's going to be a major bump in your numbers there versus just being – like an edge player on the right with a run to your C gap and you make yeah. the tackle there. That's, it's a nice play. You did what you were expected to. If you didn't make that tackle, you're getting a negative, you know? Um, and again, like there's so much that goes into that stuff that I totally understand. I, I didn't come into this, this job believing in all that stuff. I understand that that you take all of that with under the understanding that just because the edge defender doesn't make the tackle on a run to his C gap, doesn't mean that he did something wrong on that play they could have double teamed him he could have held up the guy and let somebody else make the tackle like there's a lot of other factors that the computers can't take into account there which is why we we present you with both sides of things that's that's what we're going for here and that's one of those things i love about you guys is because i think like i i feel like film and analytics always gets into this like war of like who's right and i think in the end like the smart teams like in the nfl and obviously at like basically all levels you have to be able to bleed the two together because if you don't you're falling behind Yep, every sport too. Um, and obviously there's some that can go more analytics-based. We started as a baseball company um, where analytics are, are king to a, a certain degree. Um, and the old way of scouting is somewhat fallen by the wayside. Not totally, but but I, I'm, I'm very much of the belief that even though I work for an analytics company, I understand the need for both. You need to at least have an understanding of both. You need to uh understand your biases for a player and maybe if you love a guy on the field and you have numbers that maybe suggest that he doesn't do something as well as you would say that he could um that doesn't change your opinion but it makes you maybe take a step back and say what am i missing here what are they seeing um and trying to take everything to everything into account to uh to come to your final conclusion on the player so there there's a this is a good segue to Tevin Jenkins because uh, in the book, it actually mentions that when he ended up leaving the field, uh, the point, and again, I don't have the book right in front of me, but the offense did better when he was off the field than when he was on. And granted that might very well be competition and stuff like that. But I also noticed that you guys have Tevin Jenkins. His best fit is actually at a guard. And I know that there's been some talk lately about his arm length. I think he measured at 33, but like, that's just on the borderline of like what the baseline is supposed to be for a tackle by most NFL teams. So kind of like the Broncos talk to him. So that's why I kind of have to ask you about him just because I know some people like Brandon Thorne, uh, who's like the offensive line guru, you know, on Twitter and he has, he works a million places. He likes him for the Broncos. He likes him as a fit Broncos talk to him. The Broncos very well might end up having a need at right tackle because Juwan James He's here this year because of his contract, but he may very well be gone next year. He's only played, I think, 65 snaps for the Broncos. Um, what like, what do you think of Tevin Jenkins? Like, Between the numbers, kind of the guard fit, like, just where are you at with him? Or where are you guys at with him? Yeah, so the on-off splits thing was interesting. And again, that's one of those cases where we like Tevin Jenkins. We grade him as a starting caliber guard. Yes. Um, but... But yeah, I mean, you, you, it's just something that gives you pause. The rest of that that section that we had Mark Simon put together uh, is a great writer. He used to work at, at ESPN for a number of years on Baseball Tonight as the researcher for them. 
um, put that together with Kyle Pitts and Kadarius Tony, and they're on off splits and stuff, and they're all positive. And then to kind of show the other side of things, you got Tevin Jenkins, who for whatever reason we think he's a great player. They were they improved with him off the field. So, um, but no, Tevin Jenkins is I mean great functional strength, aggressive demeanor. He's he's just a nasty dude. Um, had a he just dominated Joseph Asai in that big matchup with Texas. Like that was one of Osai's worst game tapes that I've heard this year. Um, yeah, he's just a nasty dude on the right side. But uh, we graded him as a guard because we thought there was enough of a disparity in the two projections and enough of a ceiling to make that move. So me personally, um, I know this is one of the things that you had noted to, to discuss here, the, the kind of reasons why you would maybe bump somebody inside. Yeah, I personally keep guys at tackle as, as long as possible. As long as they can prove they can do it, then then I, I want them to get every chance to do that. When I start thinking about that that transition – is when their ceiling is more than just like that, maybe six eight to six seven grade. Um, it gets a little bit deeper than that. If you're kind of a low end starter at tackle, but you're a solid starter or higher ceiling than that uh, at guard, um, or when you start talking about their clear weaknesses being mitigated, like significantly mitigated with the bump inside, that's going to be kind of the case where I start kind of opening my eyes. A guy that I had noted that we had talked about that not too many people have talked about this year, um, Cole Van Lannon at Wisconsin, left tackle for a few years at Wisconsin, um, got torched by Chase Young that everybody remembers, the, the four-sack game against Chase Young. But other than that, he's, he's been a, a good two-year starter at Wisconsin, obviously Wisconsin offensive lineman and stuff. Um, I haven't seen too many people talk about him. We bumped him inside the guard. He's never played guard in his life. Um we have some guys that like Alex Leatherwood, we made that decision to bump inside, but we've seen him at guard. Yep. Um, Elijah Vera Tucker, we've seen him at guard. That was a really tough one because he, he actually played really well at left tackle. Um, we've just seen how good he was at guard. That's kind of the other thing that you throw in there. If you're if it's not necessarily a projection, if you've seen him do it, um, that kind of takes it. You just kind of pick which one you think he looks best at. But if you've never seen him do it, then it's it's tough to make that call. Van Lennon's never played guard before, as, as far as we can tell. He didn't at Wisconsin. Um, but his clear weaknesses are his arm length, his uh, athleticism and reactive athleticism on the perimeter, handling speed rushers, like things like that. Those are things that you would theoretically say, okay, you bump him inside. Some team that wants a, a power blocking who would be okay with a tall guard because not everybody's okay with a 6'5 plus guard. Um, but schematically, if you're a power running offense, you want a mauler, you want to get tougher inside, Wisconsin offensive lineman. Um, he'll finish you. He'll do all that stuff. He's great in the run game. And his weaknesses are in the passing game against speed and athleticism and stuff. You bump him inside, that's going to be mitigated. Um, why not take a shot at that? You know, and, and we think that he wouldn't be a starting caliber tackle because of those issues. He'd have to be maybe a right tackle, um, but he, he would get exposed in the NFL. Again, like the, the whole – we're talking about blurred lines through this podcast, the – um, the whole left versus right side thing has gotten blurred a ton in recent years because it used to be the whole pass protectors are on the left, run blockers are on the right. And now if you're not a pass blocker, then you can't play regardless. Um, you still have those kind of, again, we talk about these prototypes and stuff like the whole, even in front the two down, the two gapping stuff, like everything has a prototype, which is what we're talking about when you, you project a guy to left tackle versus right. Um, so he would be the prototype of like a right tackle, but we'd bump him inside the guard. And now we don't know what that looks like, but based on his strengths and weaknesses, we could see that maybe working out pretty well, at least certainly higher than what we would project him to be a tackle. 
My, my question with Jenkins, I guess, because again, I've, I've only just briefly watched him. Um, I need to go back and like really watch him. Uh, because the length issue and because like what I've heard about like his issues with speed, um, that's going to be there at tackle, whether you're in a zone scheme or a gap scheme. The one thing I like about Jenkins fitting like as a right tackle, first of all, the Broncos just paid Graham Glasgow. So like they don't have an immediate need at right guard. He's kind of like the big issue. So like if they were showing interest in, they're almost definitely looking at him as a right tackle, I think. Um, because they run a lot of that pin and pull and like the counter and like they try and bring the tackle down, would that kind of take advantage of like his strengths as the drive blocker? And then like they're just kind of hoping to God he figures out how to pass block? Yeah, for sure. And and again, it, I don't even know if it's it's a like an issue with pass protection. Um, it was more that uh, Jordan Edwards is fantastic for us. Did Tevin Jenkins' report and, and mostly talked about his body control and footwork and flexibility at tackle being issues. Um, and so when he graded him at, at guard, when you look at like the grades that we gave him, the, the one through nine scale grades of six being a good, seven being a very good, that's kind of the stuff that we're talking about being everybody in the same page with the same language. Yeah. Um, he grades him as a six pass blocker and a seven run blocker because in his mind, he's grading him as a guard. If he's grading him at a tackle, maybe that pass block drops down to a five. It's more sufficient, um, things like that. But when you're, he's just projecting when you bump him inside that, okay. that strength at the power of uh, at that point of attack, um, the ability to sustain blocks, he's going to be able to drive guys off the line. He's not going to have to deal with athleticism. That body control isn't going to be an issue. That flexibility to kind of sit and anchor on an Island isn't going to be an issue. Um, maybe not even be a length thing, but uh, Jordan did not seem as like a guy who has to bump inside. I know he stewed over that one. That was a tough one yeah. for him. So um, again, it's schematically, some teams would certainly see him at a tackle and, and have no issues with it. Um, again, when we're talking about just like from a, a generic point of view here, there's a case to be made where, um, and maybe he would just be a good tackle and a very good guard. And in those cases, I'm, I'm even more willing to just keep him at, at tackle um, just because it's a more premier position. But um, if Jordan saw enough of a disparity there to really say, yeah, he'd be fine at, at tackle, but man, he'd be awesome at guard. Like yeah, he's, okay. he's one of our top guard prospects now where he might've been, I don't know, maybe sixth, seventh at tackle, but now he's in our top five, whatever guards, then, then that might be reason enough to, to give him a shot there. But yeah, I, I don't think it's a reason that he couldn't play tackle Definitely. like a Cole Van Lana that I mentioned where like we would really have serious issues with that. Um, but he has a real shot at guard, something like that. But, uh, yeah, he's an interesting one. Are there any other kind of like right tackles that kind of fit that profile in your mind? Of, of uh, which like, profile? The, like the guys the, who would stay well, a tackle? Well, the, like a right tackle type who could play, probably thrive in like a gap scheme, um, can survive in like pass pro, maybe doesn't have to play right away. Um, I know Smith from East, uh, I want to say East Carolina. Like I've, I've seen him. I've, I'm kind of intrigued by him. But I'm just kind of thinking because, again, like the Broncos, if they take a right tackle this year, they're not going to need to play him unless Jawan James can't. Um, they'll have a year for Mike Munchak to hopefully coach him up and kind of try and, you know, refine some of the rough edges. Um, so I'm just kind of – and, again, I'm looking through the guy. I just like, is there anybody that jumps out to you that you're kind of thinking that might be a good fit that for that? Yeah, so we had mentioned Walker Little earlier. Uh, you mentioned him as a guy who he certainly just because it, it's not just the opt-out, it's the whole year before that, except for he got hurt in the opener before that. So yep. um, haven't seen him in two years. So just on by that alone, he would be a guy that you'd maybe you were projecting to that second year. Um, we would, we would, I would expect we wouldn't see him in that first year. But, I mean, he's obviously a guy who, number one player in the country, coming out of high school, 
um, has that size that you look for, the Stanford offensive lineman. Like he pretty much fits that that role to a T. Um, although the the Ben Hergich, who wrote his report, said that he'd be more of a left tackle than a right tackle. Just he's a natural pass protector, and he needs to, even though he has the size, he needs to really refine his technique, his upper body technique, and um, and things like that to to be a right tackle necessarily. But again, we're just talking about stereotypes here. Yeah. He certainly has the size to play right tackle. Um, and with a year of development and staying healthy and developing him however you want to, you could certainly move him to the right side. Um, so yeah, he'd be a guy. I'm a big fan of James Hudson um, yeah. as a developmental guy for uh, by the second year. Where I mean, he's a former defensive lineman at Michigan, and he plays offensive line like a defensive lineman would. Like he's, I mean, Jordan talked about the O line swag for days. Like he's got the towel out the back and he's getting hyped after big plays and stuff. And he's just got that that swagger, that aggressiveness that a, a defensive lineman plays with, um, physicality to finish guys and stuff, but. Uh, he's an offensive lineman now, and this was this past year was his first year playing offensive line, and I was really impressed with his high level technique for one year of starting at, at left tackle. Um, his footwork, the the hand techniques, the hand counters that he flashed at guys and stuff like that's some high level stuff that you don't see from a guy who's playing D tackle two years before that. Um, so I think that he could grow into being a low-level starter. I, I projected him more again to the left side because he's, again, got that kind of athletic cut to him that you would think would be more of a pass protector body type. Yeah. But, um, again, like I, if, if you take him within the first couple of rounds, I just want to get that guy on the field. I think he's going to be really good with further development, uh, especially with what he's shown already. Um, I just assume that there's a lot more room to grow there with, uh, with how quickly he picked up one year. Again, like I, I love talking ball. This is like my favorite thing every week. So just don't let me keep you too late. Uh, edge is like a weird position for the Fangio defense just because Bradley Chubb kind of like he was a defensive end coming out and he's actually like Khalil Mack type. Like in that like where he's essentially like a quasi like 4-3 end slash edge, like where he can play 3-4. But like I think like best fit for a lot of people was probably a 4-3 end. Um, but then on the other side of the ball, you have Von Miller. Um, in the past, like Fangio, like had Leonard Floyd. Malik Reed does this. Like they're lighter. Like Malik Reed, I think is two hundred thirty five pounds. Uh, Von Miller for a long time played at two hundred thirty five pounds. He was always listed two fifty, but he wasn't. Um, so like, it's kind of like one of those things where like if an edge can drop into space like at all, and then like basically from there it's kind of body type. I think. Uh, they haven't shown interest in anybody that we know of yet. But because Von Miller's contract situation is such a huge question right now, it's one of those things like I can't ignore it. And I actually really like this class. Um, I think this edge class, it doesn't have a Chase Young in it. But it's it's like if you're looking for a developmental starter, there's quite a few guys. I know you guys had uh, – one second. You guys had 21 different edges with a 6.2, which is versatile backup um, or better. Yeah, it, it is, it's strange this year. Yeah, you're right with the, the whole – we're so used to the first defensive player every year going in the top five picks and being an edge rusher. And we've just gotten used to that over the past few years. And there isn't that this year. So people naturally think that it's just a bad edge class and it, it might be at the top, but um, yeah, like you said, we've numbers uh, seven guys that have six sevens and above as solid starters. Um, and like you mentioned, Bryce did Greg Rousseau. Um, he viewed him as a guy who would take a year to kind of figure it out. He really had some concerns that first year. Um I'm kind of the same way with Jason Owe as a guy who give him another year to figure it out. And I just think he's got such a high ceiling to, I mean, he, he could be 
one of the best players in this class if he figures it out just with the the tool set that he's got. The sack stuff doesn't doesn't scare you at all. No, okay. I, I think his his pressure numbers were fine, and I just think for a guy who he was a basketball player um, coming up through high school, he had he's only played maybe like four or five years of organized football, um, even at this stage in his career. And the big thing with him was right now he's a ready-made NFL run defender as an edge rusher. Being so football young, you don't normally see that be the first thing that develops. And he's got like he's highly intelligent enough to figure that out. Um, combined with, I, I legitimately think he's going to run the four threes as a 200 whatever pound edge rusher with the crazy length and stuff. Like he's just as toolsy as they come. He's going to compete. With, he's he's basically like the Montez Sweat role there, but. Um, he's still just figuring it out. And I, I just projected him to be a guy. I was kind of on that six, 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 seven border. And I just think he's going to figure it out with, if you've got the run defense right now, already where when normally you expect a guy who's just like a, a former basketball player, who's just figuring it out, you go out there, you, you become a pass rusher basically. And, and you, you figure out, yeah, you figure out the other stuff. They have no idea how to, how to set the edge and stuff. He's got all that already. And he's got four, three speed off the edge and he just got to work on this repertoire and got to kind of put that, put that tool set to use. Um, so yeah, I like Rousseau and, and Jason, away who I was talking about there and those guys might take a second year, but we think there's a number of guys that can be solid starting players by their second year and kind of fit a few different roles there. One, one, I like Quincy uh, Roche and I like Joseph Asai too, but I know Osai Osai's scary. in the fact that like he did get destroyed by Tevin Jenkins so badly, uh, I, I, I also know that I'm biased towards speed rushers. Like I have a, I have a bad thing for speed rushers just cause I think it's, I blame Bob Miller or like Madden. Like I've always just been that guy that like, I always took advantage of speed rushers so badly. And then Bob Miller's just confirmed that to death. Am I like, should I kind of like level my enthusiasm for these two? Or like, what do you think? I know, I know one of the big concerns with Roche is the motor because he's kind of runs hot and cold. Uh, yeah, so it's it's crazy all the, the number of uh, Miami guys that have come out this year either played this past year or opted out and then yep. played for him this year with uh, with Roche. Um, but yeah, he's he's well rounded. He's one of the more well rounded guys at this top group that's kind of ready made in, in all aspects. Um, he and Jalen Phillips, who's our number one edge rusher, which not too many people have, um, fit in really well for Russo this year as as. Uh, put up big numbers, pressure numbers and all that stuff. Well-rounded guys. Um, but yeah, standing up athleticism, he's a bit undersized, but he's kind of got the full package there. That's ready to go. Uh, as far as Jalen Phillips, I got to ask you a little bit about him just because uh, Brett Coleman, who does a lot of YouTube breakdowns was floating this idea that the Broncos should take Jalen Phillips at nine. I'm terrified of the medical stuff just because I, I feel like, and again, like I, I'm not a doctor and I have no idea. But, like, I, I'm in Michigan. I remember Ernie Sims. Like, Ernie Sims had a lot of concussion scares, and then he got drafted. And, again, he had the tool set. He just – concussions, it's like it can creep up at you at any point in your career. So, like, that scares me. Um, yep. But at the same time, like, yeah, I've watched Phillips. I like, I like the idea of how he fits. But, like, what, what do you think of him? Yeah, we, we had a, a long-term injury risk on him. He had a ton of stuff in his career and even retired. So, who knows how teams are going to handle that with um, – just the whole, like, do you want this kind of mentality stuff? But he came back this year and played really well. Eight sacks, I think 35 total pressures. Um, stepped in in Russo's absence, had a really good season. 
Um, he led the entire class in run defense total points, which again tells you right there, like if these guys are, are edge rushers and stepping up in the run game right now, and again, he's just he's another one of these guys, two and three point stance. Uh, he didn't drop a ton, but he showed the ability to kind of get to his spots and read the quarterback. And um, he's just, again, kind of like Owe, where he's got, he needs to improve that repertoire of figuring out how to get that pass rush. But again, when you're already putting up 35 pressures, eight sacks, and you're just toolsy, that's the kind of stuff that coaching staffs are going to be like, I can work with that. I can, I can figure that out and I can teach you some of this, these counter moves and things that you need to stack on top of each other. Well, and I think the run defense thing is very notable too for listeners because I've heard, again, when I've talked about Jalen Phillips before, people always say like, well, well, look at the UNC Miami game where UNC ran for, you know, for days and days on them. And they try and use that as a, as a way to bash Phillips. And it's like, you can be part of a bad run defense and still be a very good run defender. So. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, for sure. And, uh, and then a couple other guys moving down the list of kind of typical mold guys that we're talking about with movable pieces and guys that are maybe more comfortable in space. Um, I had Chris Rumpf as a guy that Nate Cooper wrote up, and, and I wish he could be here to talk about it, but I'll kind of take it up for him just based on his report. He had better production than Phillips did this year, and, and Phillips was great, but eight and a half sacks, I think 45 total pressures. Um, just super raw player, incredibly raw athlete. Uh, long and lanky, lacks the play strength right now to set a strong edge in the run game. But he's the guy, he he stood up, I think, 50% of the time. Uh, and Nate was showing me some of the stuff where he, I mean, he was lining up as like mug, A-gap stuff and, and off the edge. And he'd stack strange alignments with guys. Like he's just this long, lanky dude that stands up all over the place. Um, he just needs to get an NFL weight program and kind of learn some further intricacies of pass rush to buoy that athleticism. But um, that's just natural pass rush to get 45 pressures in a season in a shortened yeah. season this year for Duke. Uh, he was fourth in the class in pressure rate, I think, and in pressure share, which I mean, means that he's just, he's the only dude on his team that's putting up numbers like that. Um, at his size, he's just going to kind of bulk up. So he's a guy. And then a late guy that I'd written down, I'm not a huge fan of his, but I, I did his report early on was Hamaka Rashad at Oregon state. Um, I only brought him up because I think he's one of the better coverage guys for edges in this class. Um, that's kind of one of the only things that I, I super like about him. He's got really quick hands. What, yeah. What, what, what don't you like about him? Uh, yeah, so he, he's a guy that people have been split on. So I have to ask you about it. He, everybody looks at those 2019 numbers. And if you're just box score outing, it was, it was crazy. He, he led the country in TFLs. He had 13 sacks, I think. Um, I watched two of his three sack games and every single one of them was a coverage sack, a cleanup sack. Like he's, he's cleaning up a, a teammates, better actual true rush production. Um, like those numbers were inflated, which then comes to 2020, which is it's proven in 2020 when he had zero sacks and he had like 11 total pressures. He went from having uh, like over three pressures a game to having one pressure game in the, in the shortened season this year um, just made no impact. So uh, I do think he has really quick hands. I think there's there's something worth there developing with the quickness in his upper body. Um, and I do think that he's a, a natural coverage player for an edge. For I mean, you don't see a lot of like true coverage guys. We have flat coverage as a grade where you have guys that Jason Owe who never done it and he's not really a change of direction guy. And you just he's just he's a four three guy. Like he's never gonna do it. So he's gonna get a terrible grade. Uh Rashad played his entire career in his two-point stance, very comfortable, like passing things off and, and understanding what's going on around him and stuff. So 
um, as like a later guy. I don't think that he's a, a day two guy by any means, but later in the draft, I think he could be a guy that somebody would see those hands, see that that um, see the the coverage ability. And uh, he just needs to bulk up. He needs to work on his rush lane discipline. He's got a lot of work to do overall. But with the quickness in his hands, that somebody could say that, hey, I can work with that. With that production, we can get back to that level. Uh, one other that I want to ask you about, obviously, is quarterback. I'm, I've been trying to kind of put it off because that way people have to listen to everything else before they flame us about quarterbacks. Um, you guys – didn't think very highly of Drew Locke. I know, like, I've looked at the the catchable ball, the on-target. Like, like Drew Locke was awful. Like, Drew Locke was awful by basically every single metric, both box score and, like, advanced stats. Um, am I crazy for being low on Drew Locke? Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Uh, no. I mean, again, I haven't looked at his in-depth numbers and stuff. I just remember him coming out and, uh, and Nate and I were at the senior bowl and, and saw his like intro press conference at the senior bowl and stuff. And I'm like, man, this guy's got it. Like yeah. just the mentality, the, the leadership, the swagger and everything like this dude's got like that it factor that you're looking for. Um, but Bryce Rossler, who you mentioned did his report and gave him a really low grade last year. And I think we even had to bump it up just because we knew he was going to go high. And we we're like, come on, Bryce. Like we try to nudge him, wing, wing, nudge, nudge, like, come on. But Bryce didn't like him last year. And, that's panned out for sure. Um, it's interesting the the whole, if you take a quarterback at nine thing or, or what you do with, with that spot is largely predicated on if you, you want to give uh, him another chance. And uh, we've talked to some other people about like taking quarterbacks in the top 10 and you're balancing like, okay, do you want to take like maybe the, the fourth or fifth bet, like the Lance or Mac Jones or something like that. Or if you do that, then you're bypassing maybe the number one corner or one of these top four crazy pass catchers that could really improve your team elsewhere or whatever. Like you're missing out on like the top of some other position to reach for a guy that if you like Drew Locke enough, give it another chance, build up the rest of the team. You can kind of reset it next year. I'm not a big fan of like the the next year's always you're looking forward to the next season because um, the next season is never given, but. Have you have you guys started looking at any of the because like watching other players you probably have noticed the quarterbacks that are probably going to show up next yeah, year. Yeah, I is haven't. There, there, okay, them, but, I'm just but there's any, yeah, oh. I mean like there's plenty. Yeah, with the with the charting operation, obviously there's there's guys that stand out and like um, uh, Howell's obviously way up there. I know um, Rattler was really bad early in the season, and then I charted their bowl game, and he was incredible, and like he really improved as the season went on. Um, I'm a USC fan, so Keaton Slovis was awesome his freshman year, and he was really bad last year. Maybe not really bad, but he was bad. He had a down year last year. And so a lot of people think that he might have maybe had elbow issue or something like that. There might have been an injury issue in there. Obviously, he got hurt at the end of the year, but some people think he was hurt all season. Um, so if he can bounce back. Uh, I became a fan of Desmond Ritter in charting games through the year. I, I was surprised. Like, I had this mentality. Like, I had no idea who he was. I kind of went in thinking he's just, like, this tall, lanky running quarterback, and he actually did a lot of quarterbackish stuff, like NFL quarterbackish stuff that I was like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. So they're going to be really good next year at Cincinnati. Um, he's going to have a real chance to kind of jump up into that top group. So 
Um, yeah, there's a few names there, but I haven't, I haven't scouted any of these guys yet. We do have a, a 2022 look ahead at the end of the handbook for people if they want to check that out. Um, that Bryce writes every year, which is one of my favorite things. And he actually excludes quarterbacks from that and touches on all the other stuff, which I think is really interesting. Um, and, uh, and he actually intros the section talking about guys from last year's 2021 look ahead that are now in the handbook and, and top rated players and things like that. If you were the Broncos, would you give Drew Locke another year? It's very tough. Uh, you don't. You can hedge. You can hedge if you need. I, I asked. Um, I asked. I'll hedge hard because I, I haven't watched them super closely. I mean, I've seen some of the metrics and stuff. They're not great. Um, so I know what my perception of them has been, and you're, I know you're concerned with like the the young receiving core and everything. Like you kind of want to capitalize on that, and then you're kind of afraid that maybe you don't have the quarterback that can capitalize on that. Well, and my my concern is like, and again, I I've watched way too much Drew Lock. That's that might be why I'm so biased against him at this point. But but one of the things one of the things <laughs> I maybe there's too, that's your answer. Yeah. But one of the things I've always I, I'm actually really concerned about is it, I, I at one point I went back and I, I know passer rating is garbage. Like to some extent, I hate to hate on it, but like to some extent, passer rating, I'm not a big fan of it, but it's an easy metric to like look at data going back a long way. Um, I went back to 2000. I looked at every quarterback who has started 16 games and then what they did in their next 16, if they got another 16 and then what they did in their third 16, if they got, you know, as many, as many starts there, the list of quarterbacks who went from where Drew Locke is to like what the Broncos obviously need, like an average quarterback it's very, very small. Like it's basically Josh Allen. Um, and that's basically yeah. the list. Like Josh like, Allen broke a lot of metrics. Yeah. Yeah. Him and I think Drew Brees are the two that really like kind of sh- they they saw they shine as outliers. So like that's one of the big things that's like concerning for me. Um but one thing that kind of stands out to me too is like when George Payne, the you know, the Broncos GM, was with the Vikings in the two thousand eleven draft, they took Christian Ponder. And this is, you know, the 2011 draft is like the famous defensive draft. So it might be one of those things where like he learned his lesson. He wants to give Julak another chance. Um, if the Broncos don't, or if the Broncos do go quarterback, are there any guys like, whether in the guide or but based on like what you've seen to the guys, are there any guys to you that kind of stand out as like, even if he might not be the top two quarterbacks? Like, cause I know Trevor Lawrence is going number one. Zach Wilson is almost definitely going in the top five. There's enough talk that the league is cool on Justin Fields that I have like an outside hope that maybe he slides because people overthink him. Um, yeah. Between Justin Fields, Trey Lance, Mac Jones, like if you had to bet on one for the Broncos, does any did any of them kind of stand out as if you're going to take a chance again? Like, and again, not to put you on the spot, I'm not trying to get you. No, right. no, I, I think I think it's an interesting. I think it's a, a very interesting discussion, and I think the answer that we would say would be Justin Fields for sure, because we grade them as Trevor Lawrence, clear number one, then there's a drop off. Then we actually have Justin Fields over uh, Zach Wilson, but we have them, they're tied as grades. Um, and our boss, Matt Manicharian did Justin Fields' report and made sure to have us put Justin Fields above Zach Wilson. He's a big uh, Justin Fields fan, just basically says that he's, he's a guy who his athleticism can play in any sport. Uh, his ability to kind of move on the run, work play action stuff. Like he, he just kind of has everything that he was looking for. He's a big accuracy guy and, and he had no concerns with his accuracy. So Justin Fields, and then there's a drop off and you get to Trey Lance and, and Mac Jones tied at, it goes from seven, two to six, nine to six, six. So there's, there's clear steps within there. 
But then after that, it gets down to six four. So everybody six five and above is a starting caliber quarterback for us. Um, six four to six two are circumstantial starters, better backups basically. Um, so you're looking at guys that are six six and up. There's only five guys for us. Um, and so I would say if you're really on this borderline, I would only maybe move on from Drew Lock if one of those top three, namely top, the second and third guys, fall to number nine. Whereas if you're really wanting to move on from Locke, so much so that you would take like a Trey Lance or a Mac Jones, quote unquote, as a reach there, that might not be where I'd like at that point. I think if, if all the top three guys are gone, I think I'd maybe move on to taking an elite guy at another position. Whereas if you can get a Justin Fields, who we have as the number two quarterback in the drafts, really neck and neck there with, with Zach Wilson. Um, that might be enough of the the nudging that they need to say let's let's wipe our hands of this and move on and, and refresh here with a, a young elite potential young quarterback. The one concern a lot of people seem to be throwing around with Fields is the processing stuff. Where where do you kind of land with that? Yeah, it's it's an issue with a lot of the guys. Um, it's uh, hold on, yeah, no problem. It's a uh, it's an issue with a lot of the guys. Like we are. The scout who did Trevor Lawrence's report has been Clemson's participation scout for his entire career. Like he's, he's watched every, he's a big Clemson guy. Like he's watched every play that, that Trevor Lawrence has had. And one of his issues with Trevor Lawrence is that they just make things really simple. Like people don't realize it, but it's a lot of half field reads. It's a lot of one, two read and, and take off stuff. Like, um, I don't think that's as big an issue as some people maybe make it out to be, especially when you have the athleticism of those top three guys who, um, if they are a, an early progression and take off guy, uh, I don't think Justin Fields is a guy who takes off and, and runs like at the first sign of, of an issue, he's going to take off and run. Like, I think he is a guy who can extend a play and, and kind of make plays off schedule, uh, look to throw. Um, he is really good on the run, throwing on the run. So he does keep his eyes downfield and everything. So I, I think that's kind of where you're looking there that I, I'm not as concerned about that, especially in today's age of quarterbacks where these guys come up in seven on seven and stuff like um, there, that style is more in vogue these days. And you can kind of tailor things to that, that play style. It's, it's not the whole, the pro style, the definition of what a pro style quarterback is these days is, is kind of becoming more of the, what the prototype of a spread quarterback was back in the day. Mm-hmm. Does Mac Jones's uh, mobility scare you at all? You know, it doesn't. I, I became a, a, a Mac Jones guy this year. I, I I watched him. I'm Alabama's participation scout, so I watch all their games. Um, and he was not very good last year after replacing Tua. I mean, he was he was good. He was fine. But th- that last season was more of the case for he just got elite talent around him. Like he's just kind of the game manager, keeping the car running, basically. Um, he made plenty of plays this year that were him and, and he made some, he's the most accurate quarterback in the book by all counts from uh, a statistical standpoint and our leaderboards and stuff um, from on catch rate, like on target rate or um, catchable catch, like all that stuff, like on target, everything he was, he was across the board, number one. Um, and I think he's mobile enough uh, in terms of like scrambling ability, but like I'm not even concerned with the scrambling ability. I think he has very good mobility within the pocket. I think he has that sense of um, keeping his feet square and shuffling in the pocket and feeling pressure around him. 
um, not even pressure, but just like casually sliding, subtly moving to open space. The, the Tom Brady um, is like the yes, I, finding I, I, open I windows. Phone booth. I, uh, it, I, I, this finally clicked with me this year, and I know it sounds crazy, and I hate comps too, and I'm certainly not comping into them at all. But he moves in the pocket like a Manning, like one of the Mannings. He throws like a Manning. He he kind of he just he has that feel. Where like neither of those guys were mobile by any means, but they had that sense around them. They have that ability to. I mean, the, their throwing motions are similar. Um, the way that they stay square in the pocket and everything like that that kind of stood out to me. So um, I don't think it would be an issue. Obviously, you want guys to be athletic. Um, you want guys to be able to make plays off schedule. He has enough of that, but it's not really his strong suit. Like he's a guy who's in the pocket who he can go through progressions. But again, like there's only so much mobility in the pocket that can get you by before you get sacked. Somebody's going to get to you. Um, but yeah, I, I became a big fan of Mac Jones this year. I, I think he's kind of got, he's definitely more than just a, a total game manager my, benefiting my, from the guys around him. My big concern with like the play out of structure stuff. And I, and I know other people have brought this up before is the idea of like in today's NFL, because of the limited practice time, it's hard to get so good at managing like the, the line of scrimmage like a Manning did to kind of protect yourself before the play. Do you think that's like warranted with Jones? Like, do you think that's a real, like that, do you think that should be a real concern? Because like on the yeah. other side of it, I've had some, I've had a uh, Tim Jenkins. He does a lot of quarterback stuff and he has heard from like people he knows that like Mac Jones is like a maniac. Like he's like the Tom Brady, like mindset where like, he's going to put in that kind of work. Like would that mitigate that? Like, I, I guess like, I'm just, kind of throwing it out there like where do you kind of land with all that yeah um I, I have heard that as well that that mac jones really takes it seriously i mean you obviously commend him for being one of the very rare quarterbacks these days to who stuck around for three years waited his turn um shut out a, a five-star incoming freshman who was everybody expected would just take that job and and he said this is my this is my team i'm taking this i, I started last year and i'm just running with it and he had one of the best seasons ever um, so you definitely commend him for all that. I think that that speaks very highly for, for who he is. Um, but yeah, the whole, the whole practice practice stuff, I think it actually benefits a guy like Jones more than a guy who would maybe be like a Zach Wilson's a very off schedule type quarterback as well. Um, he's, he's more of like the Patrick Mahomes as a prospect, certainly not coming to Patrick Jones or Patrick Mahomes, but Patrick Mahomes as a prospect was, he had the whole backyard football mentality. Like that was what everybody said about him. And, and Zach Wilson's pretty similar to that. Um, he's definitely more structured than Patrick Mahomes was. Patrick Mahomes was, was nuts with that whole thing. But Zach Wilson definitely played within more structure this year. But he has that bit of that that gunslinger's kind of backyard football off off script playmaking mentality. Um, it, it hurts those guys more these days in terms of their practice ability um, because they don't get to show that as much in practice. Whereas a Mac Jones, who is much better in structure and thrives within that structure of going through progression and stuff, that shows up in practice much more. Um, and so you could see a guy like him maybe taking to like an offseason quarterback battle a bit better um, and doing exactly what the coach is looking for and being like, man, look how he goes through this stuff. Whereas the guys who play off script, they don't have those live bullets coming at them. They're much more give me in a game and I'll show you, but like, I can't show you in practice without live bullets coming at me. Um, to some degree, there's, there's a bit of that where like those guys need to prove that they can play within these, these multi-progression reads, especially in the NFL, like coaching staff is going to want it a certain way. And, and, and maybe some of these guys are like, look, I just want to 
check this guy, check this guy. Let me get out of the pocket. Let me make something happen. Like that's, that's what I'm doing here. And, and coaching staffs might not like that. They, they want you to more kind of follow the script of what they're looking for. That has been like the big concern I've seen thrown around about Trey Lance is that he's basically like, he's, he's afraid to throw it into tight windows and he'd rather run it. Um, and then again, like I, I typically have a type of like, I'm afraid of one year starters anyway, just because like, and, and this is a bias I think from just the original like football outsider stuff about, uh, the, the Lewin uh, quarterback projections back then was like basically more starts and accuracy was like the accurate predictive like model back then. Um, and like Trey Lance, like, so that scares me with him. He's coming from FCS. He hasn't played much. He's young. He He's a one read throw and run guy. Um, 100%. Yeah. yeah and, Nate, Nate wrote his report and, and said he didn't see him make an anticipation throw the entire – he watched nine games and didn't see him throw with anticipation once. Yeah. Um, we also in charting his games, we made like a specific thing to chart all the North Dakota state games from last year. Uh, this season leading up to the handbooks, we could have all of his stats. We don't normally chart North Dakota state games, but we made a kind of a special project for that. And, uh, and I don't think any of the scouts who did any of his games came away like super impressed with him just because we're like, when you're charting games, you're doing a lot of accuracy stuff and none of them liked any of his act. Like he just has real accuracy issues that people seem to bypass because look at that arm strength and everything. But um he's definitely crazy toolsy and, and nate saw it and and he's a special runner and he's got the size and um man he's got some big time throws so he's he might be like a two years down the road instead of just one year in the future kind it's of like, guy but like a josh allen hope is like how yeah. i see him and then yeah. again like i i could i've watched you lock for two years so i could talk myself into it but i don't know if i if i would do that in a normal year yeah, that's kind of what I'm talking about. That that like drop off there. Like, if Fields is, is gone, are you you're weighing the, the benefit of taking a Lance or a Jones? Yeah. Is your team ready to do that, or would you just want to like take another top guy, kick the can down the road, maybe find a quarterback elsewhere, like a vet or something, and, and just kind of move on that way? So then, and again, like the last thing I kind of have to bug you about uh, the Broncos that I know of have have actually talked to two receivers, which is weird because like obviously the Broncos have receivers for days right now uh so to me they talked to dax milne and rondell moore i know more like because moore's been hurt so much like his draft stock could be all over like we have no idea where he actually might end up because the league might be cool on him because of that stuff but the other thing that to me that might hint at is the fact that the broncos may still be really interested in deshaun watson talks because like if the houston texans want Cortland sutton or you know whoever Obviously, if the Broncos trade one of the receivers, they might need one again. Um, if you're the Broncos, like, and again, and again, I'm, I'm not to put you on the spot with this, but it's like, what is what is too much to offer for a quarterback like Deshaun Watson? Oh, geez. Uh, I, I, it's going to take a lot. And I, I think that I, I'm a Washington football team fan, so there's kind of been these discussions as well. And it's tough when – Certainly for us, we don't have. I think first and foremost, the Texans would be looking for a high pick, which again we don't we don't have necessarily, and maybe a quarterback in return that can like kind of fill the gap, or they can at least like build upon, um, like maybe a Tua or a Sam Darnold, like some of those teams with high picks and a quarterback that you could offer in return. They could take a shot on if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But like then you also have the top pick and stuff. Um, whereas I mean we're not we're not trading. Yeah. Kyle Allen or, or Taylor Heineke and how much do the Texans really want Drew Locke at this point, you know, like yeah. that, 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 so maybe they do, but 
Uh, it's going to take that plus a ton. I've heard they want like uh, top players as well, like top defensive players, and and it's just going to take a lot. And I don't know if after you do all that, are you going to have the team around them yep. that's ready to win? Because if you make that trade, you're trying to win now, or at least like you're you're along that path to be a contender. And you can't strip your team enough, so much so that you're not a contender anymore. You don't have that structure around you. My like I've had a theory kind of in the back of my mind that like if Justin Fields falls to nine, that's when the Broncos might be able to actually do that because like they could give I Justin see that. Yeah, like something like that. But depends let's, on their evaluations, but for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But then that's just like I've kind of been thinking like if they have a quarterback in mind, because like all the report and again, this is just all the reports about the fact that they like it seems to be that they want number two because they want their pick of the second best quarterback in the draft. To me, the second best quarterback in the draft is Justin Fields. So like if, if the league is cool on him and he somehow slides, that might be possible. But let's say let's say they're open to lock and three picks, like three first round picks. Would you do that? <laughs> might not be enough. But, it but might not be enough. Let's say it, it like I'm saying from a Broncos perspective, though. Oh, let's from say, a Broncos perspective. Let's say you were hired tomorrow. George Payton quit. He gave you the keys, and you you immediately are like, "Hey, let's try for Deshaun Watson." And Jack, I think I would. I would too. I think okay. I would from the Broncos perspective for sure. Cool. I think like again, you're you're hoping you have the, the coach, you have enough of the, the structure of a defense, you just built up the young receiving core, you're hoping that improves. Obviously, like if you look at our total points ranking and stuff, they were last in the NFL in, in receiver ranking, but we were very high on Judy last year and we we're high on, on KJ Hamler. And obviously you might hopefully you'd be getting something back and not trade him in that scenario. Um, so there's all the reason in the world to believe that that number goes way up. And so like, you think that there's enough structure there. If you input the quarterback, you got something yeah. and then you have him for a long time. He's obviously like, he just signed his contract, which is the crazy thing about this whole scenario yeah. that he just signed the contract. So you have him under contract. So it's not like you need to win necessarily right now, but, um, that's the start of something where even if you don't have the three first round picks, like you've got enough of the structure there where you can add some pieces. You can obviously, you're more attractive free agents and yada, 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 that you kind of got the, the starts of something. My whole, my whole thing on this. And again, like I know this is kind of like way off the beaten path, but it's like my whole thing on this is like, I've started watching like the quarterbacks next year. I've watched a lot of Drew Locke. Like the Broncos may very well still be looking for a quarterback three years from now anyway. So like to me, those first round picks, if you can get a Deshaun Watson, he's he probably better than anything you're going to get with those first. Very fair. Yeah, I mean, um, he's, he's like a top five quarterback in the NFL yeah. and you could take the next 10 first round picks and not find that, you know, yeah. it's, if you get a shot at it, which is why, I mean, it's, it's hard to say the Texans would be crazy to, to trade them. Cause it, it really sounds like both sides have dug in their heels. I have no idea how that's going to work out. Same. You would like to say, just figure it out with them, but it doesn't sound like he wants to. And so what do you do with that? And so you, you, they, they better get a, a haul for him. I don't think they're trading them for anything else. Yeah, same. I just, you know, I have to keep hoping, but yeah. yeah. Uh, so again, guys, if you if you haven't already gone to the site while listening to us talk, go to actasports.com and order the book if you want the digital copy. If you want the hard copy, you can also go to Amazon. Um, if you want to follow John on Twitter, he is at the real John Todd. Or if you, and again, if you haven't already followed Sports Info Solutions, which I don't know why you haven't, uh. It's on there on Twitter at sports info underscore SIS. I can't recommend the guide enough. Thank you so much for your time, man. Thanks, Jonah. This was fantastic. Uh, yeah. Like I said, at the top of the show, I'm also the, one of the head recruiters or the head recruiter of our incoming scouts. So uh, if any of this stuff interested you to be a part of moving forward from the charting side, certainly that's what we're hiring for. 
Um, but then have the chance to contribute to next year's book, then uh, look up our job posting. We should be posting it within the next few weeks and start interviews sometime early next month, maybe.